Alright everybody, so I've had a lot of people reach out to me, giving me a lot of support for signing the People in Tech podcast, and I want to really first say thank you for supporting me, but this Anchor platform has been amazing and been changing my life, getting me connected with some people in this industry that I never thought I would actually get to not only have conversations with, but learn from. And I know some of you who are tuning in are asking, Caleb, how'd you start a podcast? You know, when I was trying to get this podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I get my show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the other places people listen to? How do I make money from my podcast? Well, keep it simple. The answer to every one of these questions is Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free. And we Ridiculously easy to use. My very first episode I did for my iPhone 6 Plus. And now, Anchor can match you with great sponsors too. So you can get paid to do your own podcast. Hop on the Anchor platform so we can collaborate and build this community up. You know, one thing I love most about Anchor is that they're constantly being innovative, you know, allowing podcasts to leverage music, get sponsorship, get paid, and ultimately, be the best content creator you can be. So if you've always wanted to start your podcast and make money doing it, go to anchor.fm slash start to join me and a diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. Again, that's anchor.fm slash start. I can't wait to hear your podcast. Another great interview for recruiters looking to hire top talent. Let's get into it. Have you ever felt? Are you listening? You're listening to the People in Tech podcast, a technology show that's made for the people. Join the conversation with your host, Caleb King. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. I have to first start off by saying I apologize for the last, I believe, week or two um, for not putting out content. Mainly because I was sick. And I actually have a few episodes recorded, but my voice was just horrible. So, uh, actually, just decided to postpone it. And, yeah, I got a lot of things going on in my life right now. I'm moving and, you know, adjusting to my new job and a whole bunch of good stuff. But anyways, you guys, didn't hear, you guys didn't come to hear about that. You came here to hear about tech. So, today's episode, I got my man, Brad Westfall. Now, for those of you who aren't aware, Brad is a developer and owner of azpixels.com and questionable.io. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today is questionable.io, his recent project that just launched. And I'm going to let him go into more detail what questionable.io is. But just to give you guys the background, you know, Brad's been working in web development since 1999. Uh, he really loves getting involved in um, development, the development community, uh, creating, building, designing. He's uh, involved in things like Phoenix JavaScript Meetup, the CSSDay.io conference. Uh, he enjoys teaching web development, which led him to be an instructor uh, in Arizona. But yeah, he, he's worked on several different projects, and I've known him. Uh, for a while just via LinkedIn and seeing some of his previous work. Uh, once he launched questionable.io, I decided to reach out to him, see if we can get him on the show, and he was happy to oblige. 
So without further ado, let's jump into today's interview. Nowadays, people tend to look over the real art of DJing. DJing. It's more than standing on top of the DJ booth with your hands up. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about scratching. This is what keeps me passionate about DJing. What's up, Brad? Thank you for being on the People and Tech Podcast. We are happy to have you on the show today. But before we kick off today's episode, do you have anything to say to the listeners? Oh, well, I'm really glad you were able to invite me on and glad to be here. Um, I love talking about technology, so I'm pretty much an, an open book and I've uh, been doing it for a pretty long time. So hopefully I can, can uh, bring up some interesting uh, points. Awesome, man. And I think we're going to talk about some really cool stuff today, but let's start the interview off with the typical people in tech question of the day. How did you, Brad, get into tech? Yeah. So when I was, uh, when I was really young, um, drawing things was like my number one thing. I always thought I was going to be like an artist or an illustrator of some kind or, you know, an architect. I always liked designing things and drawing things. So uh, when we got a computer, when uh, I was about in eighth grade, which probably would have been about 97. Um, I was just playing in Microsoft Paint, and I just couldn't get off of it. I just loved drawing in there. And, and that kind of led into um, some more creative uh, parts of, of the computer. So a cousin of mine actually sent me a uh, ripped-off version of Front Page along with some other software. He was a little bit older. And you know, this is back when you used to be able to just burn things on CDs and send them to people. So... Um, to be honest, uh, I can probably think a big part of my career to a, a ripped off burned version of uh, front page where I started playing with making websites. And before you know it, my dad who owns a company, uh, is referring me to all of his friends who have businesses saying, Hey, um, you know, my son can, can make a website for you. And, and back then, um, you know, if, if you just knew how to make a website period, didn't matter how good it was, you know, you, you could get hired even as a 16 year old kid. Right. Yeah. You're an MVP at that point. Yeah, basically. Um, so I would come from a really small town where I, where I grew up. And so there wasn't a lot of businesses there looking for uh, websites, but there was a few. So I made like maybe three sites uh, in high school. And, and then um, when I went to college, I thought I was going to get, um, well, I knew I wanted to get a business degree, but I thought I was going to get an economics degree. Cause I really like, you know, businessy kind of financial kind of things. Okay. And um, going through the business school at, at ASU and, uh, and kind of earning um, an income doing website design on the side, um, I kind of switched my major halfway through, like a lot of people do. Uh, I already had a, a business, a lot of business credits. And so instead of going towards uh, computer science, I went towards CIS, which is in the business school and got a degree there where I learned some, some more programming and, and basically after college, just started doing client work and took it off from there. Wow. That's some, that's a really cool story, Brad. I have to admit. Um, now for our listeners, because I'm a developer myself. Now those first few websites you were talking about that you made back in high school, <laughs> yeah. 
was this like a little pre-Google Stack Overflow? Like, how did you figure out how to do the very first one? Like, I know you said um, you were able to get like the burn version of front page. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so um, yeah. that's probably why I was a, a front page person more than a Dreamweaver person because I think most people at the time were, were Dreamweaver. That was kind of like the industry-leading product. But I was a front page person because that's the tool I had. So, um, so back then, um, I got to say, I, you know, maybe there were some people who knew, you know, how to make some custom HTML. Uh, CSS was kind of like brand new, so I, I doubt people were doing a lot of custom CSS. But at the time, um, a lot of people who were getting into the web got into it because front page and Dreamweaver made it so easy. Uh, you didn't have to be like a hardcore like geek in order to, to be able to do it. So um, using front page back then was a lot, a lot like using like Microsoft Word now, where you have a, a visual you know interface and you're basically just typing things and selecting things and making it bold or making it underlined and, and using uh, the tables feature. Uh, that was really popular back then because, you know, imagine if you're designing something in Microsoft Word, you know, everything's kind of left aligned. If you wanted to make like columns, uh, you know, kind of like make structures and stuff, you would have to use tables. Um, so you would make a table, which by default would have like borders to it. So I got really good at knowing how to like take away the borders um, and then put tables inside of tables. And you know, back then that was considered like a skill to like know how to do that. Um, it quickly became an anti-pattern in the early 2000s uh, using table-based uh, design um, in favor of doing more handwritten uh, CSS. But that's basically what I was doing at first is just doing technology without even knowing technology. Man, that's awesome. Now, this, yeah, could, you bring up a very good point. I, I think a lot of people look at like technology and developers and are like, oh my gosh, they're like the wizards of the computers. And like you said, it's just kind of diving in and trying to do stuff and try to break things. Is that, is that right? Yeah, basically. Um, I think the first thing I, I wanted to make was a game for my brother. Um, do you remember those games back in the nineties where it wasn't really like 3d, like you're walking around, but more or less you would see like a, a screen of something and then you kind of click and you move forward in that space. And then you can like click left or click right. And you kind of like navigate around by clicking around. Yeah. So, I was like, between the 2D and the 3D, like it, it wasn't quite there, but it had Yeah, been- yeah. So I made, I, I probably was taking like, you know, pictures of, of our house. And by the way, there weren't even like digital cameras back then. So I was probably taking pictures and, and going down to some, you know, brick and mortar store and having them, you know, rip the pictures onto like a, a you know, three by 3.5 card or, or um, a CD or something. And then, so this is like a long process. And then you get these pictures on your computer and pull them up in the browser and, and um or, or in front page and basically just make like a little click game um a little kind of discovery game for my brother and i was doing you know at first and then um and then my dad needed a logo redone and you know some stuff for the yellow pages and back then you know you had to be in the yellow pages if you're brick and mortar so um so you know if i could if i could do the graphic design for him and he didn't have to also pay for the, the little graphic you know by the whoever does the graphics there um he could basically do it cheaper and so I, I started doing some stuff for him and doing more stuff on front page. And like I said, just one thing led to another before you know it, making really- this website called like salmonslayer.net and salmonslayer.net was one of my first websites. And it was like this guy who took people fishing on the Sacramento river. And um, believe it or not, that website was up almost exactly how I designed it until just about six months ago. Now, do you guys still own the site and it's right or the new owner? No, no. The, I, I mean, I built the site for the guy back then probably, 2000 or 1999 and um, he's it was just kind of his weekend job he would take people on uh, fishing excursions um, it's just I, th- I found it interesting that every once in a while I would 
talk to someone about like kind of the past and the web design, you know, history and Hey, let's go see if this website that I built years ago is still online. And to my surprise, it lasted until, you know, probably like 2017, 2000, early 2018. That's pretty good saying I've worked on like several projects and like after three years, it's like, Oh, that project already been deprecated. Yeah, I've definitely, I've worked on a, a lot of projects. Um, I, rem- I did a lot of logo design too in my early career because I was a little more graphic design oriented. But I remember being in, in a class in college and um, maybe I was a little bored and I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I want to, I'm just curious. I want to count up a list of every little client project I've ever done. And that includes some logos and website design stuff and some visual basic six stuff. Um, but I actually got almost to a hundred projects and, and that was um, in 2005. Wow. So Brad, you bring up a good point. So one thing we've talked about on the show is because a lot of people, a lot of my listeners are reach out to me and they're ask, Hey, how do I become a better developer? And you pretty much said it like more projects, more real world projects, whether it's fun for your brother, for your father, for family. And you just, well, you said a hundred plus. It was like, I feel like it was really close to a hundred. Um, this, in, this includes like, for instance, I had a, a, um, photographer friends and this is when we were making flash websites in the early 2000s and um i remember i made them like five sites over like i made them a new site like every six months you know it got helped me get my name out there um and then you know just doing little projects here and there i mean it just it all added up and i was surprised at the number but i still have a lot of my projects burned on cds just for archiving reasons and um, sometimes i go through and and i'm like oh yeah i remember that that was for you know, uh, a charity that we worked for, you know, when we were in school and stuff and it was a little project. So yeah, it was, it was a lot of stuff. And I, I would definitely recommend for anyone you know, trying to get into technology. I mean, it's, it's just about repetition. I mean, I literally did everything wrong a hundred times. Um, and I, I feel like I kind of learned the right way to do things just by doing it wrong so many times and reading up on the right ways of doing things and really having a, an appreciation for it. But you know, a lot of these kids are going through or kids, you know, I say, but uh, a lot of people are going through boot camps uh, now and, you know, they're getting crammed uh, three months or six months uh, of information that they have to absorb, like all this information in a very short amount of time. And they only get to hear the teacher say, hey, this is the best way to do it. So just do it this way. But sometimes when you're learning that fast, you kind of don't have an appreciation for like why it's really the best way to do things because you never really had an opportunity to do things the wrong way. Right. And I think that's definitely an engineering mindset to have. It's like you want to understand the why. You don't want to just know, hey, the thing worked. Well, why is it working? Because it wasn't working a second ago and now it's just working. Like that doesn't make sense. Yeah, actually this is kind of funny. I just remembered the first JavaScript book I ever picked up was somewhere in the early two thousands. This is back before like stack overflow where there were tons of resources online. And if you just want to learn something, you just do a search for it. So I picked up a book and I was reading chapter one and I was literally, you know, copying the, um, the, the project that they were asking me to do into the you know browser or whatever they're asking me to do it. And I couldn't get it to work. I probably had just one little character off. And this is also before um, dev tools, you know, before you can actually analyze your working uh, code. And so um, I couldn't get it to work. And I was so frustrated. And I I, I looked over the book over and over again. I couldn't get the first chapter's project to work. And I got so bad, I threw the book away and uh, and didn't really get into JavaScript until probably a few years years later when jQuery really became popular. Oh man, so you just started on the wrong foot with JavaScript there. Yeah, I think a lot of people uh, probably have a similar uh, negative story about JavaScript when they're first starting out. Yeah, no, I'm, a, I'm a huge JavaScript fan, and it's funny though, but when I do hear stories like that, I'm like, I can I can see why you would go to something else. Like, yeah, don't get yeah. me wrong, it is a quirky language. Yeah. Um, so Brad, let's switch it up for you. Um, so we've talked a little bit about, you know, where your history was, where you were coming from, but 
we want to hear more about your business. So can you tell our listeners what it is that you recently launched and how it can help people out there? Yeah. So uh, I made a web app. It's called questionable.io. And it's uh, the short of it is that it's basically a, a testing tool or an assessment tool for seeing if uh, another developer you know, knows how to do something. So you can send them like a React test or an Angular test or just a JavaScript test or you know, Python or Ruby or whatever you want to test them on. We have uh, different tests in different areas, uh, or you can make your own test. Um, it is uh, multiple choice. Um, the, I guess the interesting thing about it that makes it really unique is that the questions, even because multiple choice doesn't necessarily sound really interesting at first. You know, multiple choices existed you know, forever. But the thing that's interesting about it is that you can actually write uh, real code in the questions and the answers. And what I mean by that is uh, there, you know, the tools out there that are like CodePen or uh, Code Sandbox, where you know you can actually like write, render HTML and CSS in the browser. Right. It turns out that all those tools use some use something called Code Mirror, like under the hood. Like that's like the the engine that they use to to make it so you can basically have like a code editor in the browser. Um, code Mirror is extremely popular, actually. Um, even DevTools, I'm pretty sure, uses Code Mirror to some extent. So it gets used like all over the place. In fact, I would even probably bet if, if you're typing uh, code in the browser somewhere at any of these types of places, I would be willing to bet that there's like a 90% chance it's code mirror under the hood. Um, it's, it's that substantial of, of a project. Um, so I learned about it and I was like, well, this is fantastic. I'm going to make it so you can actually write like real code uh, in the browser. And so it's not just like a syntax highlighter where, um, you know, whereas you're typing, it's like highlighting words. I mean, it's, it feels like an editor. You can do like, shift tab, you know, we can highlight a bunch of code and do shift tab and move it to the left. You can do the sublime text keyboard shortcuts, like move code up and down. Um, it's got multiple cursors, uh, that sort of stuff. Um, I have had some problems getting Emmet to work with it, which I'm working on, but as soon as I get Emmet working, you know, you'll have Emmet. So you'll be able to do like you know, tab completion type stuff. Um, so as far as I know, it's the only multiple choice platform that's out there that allows you to actually write real code in the questions because everyone else who has a multiple choice platform is it's basically a WYSIWYG. Uh, and for any of your listeners who might not understand what that means, um, WYSIWYG stands for uh, what you see is what you get. And it's basically those, those input fields that have like maybe a bold and a italic button above it and maybe like a link insert button. So it's kind of like a cheap version of word almost in the browser, you know, where you can just do like a few little stylistic things. Um, that's, that's a WYSIWYG. And so obviously, writing code with one of those would actually even be worse than writing it like an actual Microsoft Word. I mean, it's just impossible. Yeah, it actually reminds me of um, one time, Brad, I was in an interview. And for me, I'm a huge Apple person. I've always had a terminal, you know, at my hands. Uh, and I'm a VS Code person. And I use Chrome for, you know, the dev tools, of course. And I remember going to an interview. And it was on a PC, had like a different keyboard layout, which was interesting to me. Oh, wow. Um, like not, that, a, not a QWERTY layout? Correct. Yeah, correct. So like, and it took us maybe about a good three to five minutes to figure that out. And then, <laughs> and then once we figure that out, then I'm just spending all this time. I'm like trying to do my shortcuts because I feel like I'm a little shortcut like fiend. Like I'm always looking for a shortcut to do things a little bit faster on a keyboard. Yeah. And I couldn't do anything. And I honestly remember like, God, I spent like a good 20, 30 minutes just trying to get a comfortable setup where you're interviewing me to see if I can code, not how to use this keyboard and mouse and everything like that. Yeah, I feel like they should probably just let you use your own computer, right? Yeah, but, but a product like yours though, it seems like now I'm going to this, uh, it sounds like a software as a service somewhere, so where it's like I'm going into my account, 
uh, sounds like you need an employer and a client type deal. Yeah, so I, maybe I should clarify maybe one uh, misconception I think that people have is that you're not, the, the person taking the test isn't actually writing any code when they use uh, my system. It's, it's literally multiple choice. So as the author, let's say you and I you know, had a business and we're looking to hire someone, uh, you and I could go in there and we are gonna have a really nice authoring experience to write a bunch of questions. Um, because without questionable, you'd be looking at basically using other tools that are WYSIWYG you know, oriented. So, um, so we would write a bunch of questions and answers and then the person taking the test is seeing syntax that looks just as good as uh, real code editor syntax, uh, which is nice for them. Um, but basically the, the test taker isn't really the one uh, typing very much. Okay, that makes sense then. Yeah. But still a very cool product because it seems like you are giving the employer a little bit more freedom to, I guess, supply like better interview technical questions. And then since it's a web app, it's something easy for somebody coming in for an interview just to either guest login or login and then take this question, these, uh, these questions, this test, and then get the results hopefully as soon as possible, right? Yeah, so uh, basically I'll tell you the, the backstory. Um, around 2008, I think, uh, I had a, a business and we were a little dev shop and you, know, you can come to us and make a you know, website and this is kind of like in the early WordPress days and we were building static sites still or a WordPress site if you wanted or a custom PHP site and, um, and sometimes I needed to hire people and so um, you know, I, I would get all these resumes, you know, maybe like 20 or 25 resumes and, and I didn't have time to to bring in everyone for a one hour interview, I need to, to see who's really good. Plus, I don't know if you've ever had an interview where someone comes in and you could tell within just like a few minutes that they're just not quite there yet. And you don't want to embarrass them and you don't want to make them feel like they wasted their time. So you kind of just continue with the interview to and kind of make the questions more simple so they feel okay about themselves. But you know, it really, it's really uncomfortable for both people when the person comes in and, and they're not ready. So why not have a filtering uh, mechanism, you know, like let's see who knows their stuff before they get here. So that's kind of where I came up with the idea um, of testing people. I didn't have the idea of making this system yet, but um, I went online and I searched around for like these multiple choice uh, test making type systems and I didn't find anything that was really very good. I feel like I was using the, the best of many bad options. And so, um, even though I couldn't write code in the questions, I was able to still make a technical test um, and it did its job. You know, I, I would have people get like, you know, 80% on the test sometimes, but sometimes people would get like 20% or less. And I mean, it's, it's multiple choice and there's, you know, four options. So, you know, I kind of feel like if someone gets only 20%, you know, that's, that's pretty bad. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to bring this person in for an interview, like no offense, but, um, but it's not like I was trying to make the test super hard, but I mean, I do need people that know how to do technology. And, and I realized too that, it's, you know, it's not all about technology at, you know, the tech company. Like sometimes we want to be able to train people and stuff, but, but you know, it is, it is about technology a little bit. So you got to test people to make sure they, they know what they're doing. So anyway, um, I was able to turn like 25, you know, resumes into maybe 10, uh, really good candidates, uh, who did good on the test, bring them in, give them their soft skills interview and see if we like them and then, you know, issue offers. So that was really effective. Um, and then moving on to 2014, um, I actually helped start uh, a boot camp in Arizona called Rocket Bootcamp. And uh, it was my job to come up with a testing solution to test our students every week to see how they were coming along. And so I took a look at the marketplace at that time and um, I thought, well, maybe it's changed. Maybe there's some better stuff out there. And, and sure enough, there wasn't. It was the same exact marketplace. There was really nothing very good for multiple choice. So that was really when I got the idea 
you know, if I ever get out of here and this, out of this boot camp and want to make a project, I'm going to make a, a good uh, testing product. So um, that's really kind of the, the story, the backstory of, of Questionable right there. Wow. Okay. That makes sense. So I'm sorry. I have, I have a few questions now. Can you okay. I realized that was a lot. To no, no, it's okay. So, um, so let's take a step back, Brad. Let's talk about some of the challenges uh, questionable.io because uh, I know Hacker Rank is a very popular one. I know Code Fights um, try to improve your technical skills. So sure. it seems like you are in a niche, but I'm just trying to figure out like what were some of the challenges you encountered building questionable.io? Yeah, so I can probably address like the, the marketplace, like you were saying. Um, the Hacker Rank is, is definitely like the industry leader, the one place that everyone thinks of when they think about uh, assessments of coders uh, for the purpose of interviewing. Um, but I wanted to make a product that had a, a more broad audience. Um, you can use questionable for assessment for interviews. Uh, it's a really good tool for that, but you know, you can also use it at, at boot camps, um, you know, to see what people know. I mean, you can't really, I mean, hacker rank is based on unit tests. Um, you know, they need to, they ask you to write code and then they want to automatically grade your code. Well, the only way they can do that is with a unit test, right? So for anyone listening who might not know what that is, a unit test is basically code that evaluates the correct that searches for removes them. Um, you can do that probably one of maybe five ways. Um, you can use in JavaScript, you can use map and reduce, you can use uh, probably a search and replace, you can use rate expressions, uh, you can use you know, loops and stuff. I mean, there's all kinds of different ways to solve it. And a unit test oriented platform really only knows whether or not you got the end result answer right, but they have no idea how you got the answer. Like they don't, check to see whether or not you did it with map or reduce or anything else. They only care about the end results. So uh, with questionable, I can actually ask like a question on map and reduce. I can ask a question on, you know, what's the difference between, you know, for each and map or a for loop. Um, so I, can, I feel like with, with multiple choice, I can ask more things than you can possibly ask with unit tests, but I can also ask more detailed things. Um, another thing is you can't really ask like, questions like what's the difference between get merge and get rebase. I mean, that's, that's not something you can evaluate if someone knows that information uh, based on a unit test. So, um, so I feel like hacker rank has like their thing and I have my thing and, and everyone in the marketplace is really kind of trying to follow uh, hacker rank in terms of making something that is uh, the person writes code and a unit test grades it, but they all still have that crutch. It's still a unit test uh, grading it at the end of the day. Um, and uh, I feel like multiple choice, can be good for a kind of a different solution. And, and, and if anyone disagrees, that's totally fine. Um, I would at least say this, that, um, that you can use both. I mean, you can use questionable like as your first, you know, line of let's whittle down a hundred resumes down to 50, and then you can use hacker rank for even less people. So if your bill at hacker rank is really high, you know, you could basically use less hacker rank by using a, another tool like questionable instead. Yeah, I um, I think really what you're doing, you're kind of, like you said, you're finding an, an area where you felt these questions could have been improved. And yeah, there's no reason a business has to pick one or the other. A combination of maybe several tools helps you find a better candidate for your company. Yeah. Cool. Well, Brad, uh, we're coming toward the end of our interview. But, but before we wrap it up, uh, where can people find uh, more information about you if they want to use questionable.io? Uh, you have some employers who do listen to the show. Maybe they're interested. Like how um, they get in contact with you, anything like that. Yeah, so uh, we just 
just launched Questionable uh, a couple weeks ago. It had been in beta for like six months. Um, it's officially launched now, so you can go to questionable.io and you can create an account. Um, when you get an account, it's basically kind of like a blank account. I think we give you like an HTML test that's got like 10 questions just to give you like something to kind of play around with. Um, but basically, the idea of Questionable is uh, it's kind of supposed to be something that's a little bit suitable for everyone. So if you can imagine if you're a, a boot camp or if you're a company that has a very particular need, you know, you might want to design your own questions, have one of your engineers design your own questions. And so I think you'll find uh, your engineers will find that it's a nice authoring environment for that. Um, but if you're a recruiter or let's say you're a CEO who doesn't really do code and you just want to find your first React developer and you don't really know how to evaluate the skills of this person who keeps telling you he's really good at React, um, get on Questionable and sign up and we have a marketplace. So you go to the marketplace and we have like tests for sale. So uh, we've got a React test already. We've got an Angular test. we got JavaScript basics. We're working on advanced JavaScript. Um, we have, I have uh, uh, some friends helping me out building tests. Um, so there's a Ruby test coming out soon. There's a Java test coming out soon. Um, we've got a Redux test in there. Uh, we just, uh, we just released a TypeScript test uh, most recently. So, um, I would say that's one of our biggest hurdles is we just need to make more tests for sale because I think that a big part of our audience is people who don't necessarily want to write questions. And, and so those, those are the tests that we have now, but if you want to buy tests, um, uh, there they are, they're, they're there for you for sale. Cool. All right, Brad. Well, again, thanks for being on the podcast, man. Really enjoyed this episode. Uh, I'm going to make sure to link all the information he talked about in the show notes below, but for this episode, we are out. Peace.